Hey, welcome back to the Transform Your Workplace podcast. I am Brandon Laws. It's great to be with you today. I have a conversation with Bryn Kennedy. She's the author of the new book, Flat, Fluid, and Fast, Harness the Talent Mobility Revolution to Drive Employee Engagement, Accelerate Innovation, and Unleash Growth. She's also running for Congress in Northern California. And it was such a pleasure having a conversation with Bryn. As I'm sure that you have experienced, things are changing in business, the way we recruit people, the way we interact with each other at work, our offices are changing. I mean, everything about the workplace is changing. And you know, why is that? A lot of it's probably due to technology. A lot of it has to do with just finding specific talent and you can't find it in your backyard. It's really a globalized world right now. And Bryn really sheds light on how we need to adapt to this new world that we're in. And this book is literally a blueprint. We didn't cover everything in the interview that I wish I could have. I could have spoke with her for two hours probably about this particular subject. I'm kind of a a nerd when it comes to economics and trends and things like that. So I really got a lot out of this. I think it's really fun. We cover everything from how managers need to change to the career path of a typical employee now to what does the office look like? So you're going to get a lot out of this podcast. I encourage you to listen all the way through. There's so much good stuff at the end and definitely go pick up the book too. And I will go ahead and do a book giveaway. So send me a message on LinkedIn if you're after the book and I'll tell you how you can get a copy. So thank you so much for tuning in today. Enjoy the episode with Bryn Kennedy, the author of the new book, Flat, Fluid, and Fast. Hey, Bryn, it is a pleasure to speak with you. How are you? I am good, thank you. So your book, Flat, Fluid, and Fast, it hits shelves October 1st. Not sure what the timing of this podcast is going to release, but very fascinating book. I bet you're really excited about it. I am excited for everyone to read it and have their playbook amid all of our macro trends today. So with that said, the macro trends, it's a fascinating part of this book, I think. And there's a quote I pulled that I wanted to mention right away. So the quote says, according to research by Accenture in a report, reworking the revolution, 46% of executives say that traditional job descriptions are obsolete as machines take on routine tasks and people move to project-based work. 29% say they have redesigned jobs, end quote. So I think that quote jumped out to me because I think the way business and the way we're all working is changing. I think there's no doubt about that. I think we've seen it probably slowly happen over the last decade, but really in the last probably five years, I think it just things are changing so rapidly. People aren't staying with the same companies for a long period of time. People have side hustles. Employers are opting to hire contract or freelance workers. What's happening and why is this all happening? That's a great place to start. Well, fundamentally, historic change is underway in the world of work. From demographics to technology, the economy is changing dramatically. And with that, so is the way that we work. We have uh, demographics that are the majority in the workforce today, like myself, millennials and Gen Y, many of whom look at work as more episodic than our parents did, where a nine to five job was much more typical. And so in order to make more workers thrive and to make organizations agile and efficient, we need to understand the changes as they're occurring and redesign both our business operating systems and our contract for work in America. 
I love the graph that you had in the book that shows it's a straight line. On the one side, there's traditional workforce, and then on the other side is the new workforce. And you have employees, then contractors on that traditional workforce. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you get the freelance and gig workers. Is that how we need to really think about what we're going to see? We've already seen it, but is this what the new workforce is going to really look like? Well, I think the important way to look at it is that people are working in all different ways today. They're working as traditional employees, as on-demand freelancers, as members of the gig economy. And sometimes they're doing all of those things at the same time. And today's economy demands similar agility, and it demands us to think of them as one workforce. So one of the key things that I try to communicate in the book is it's one workforce today. So if you are a business leader, you should be thinking about your workforce and architecting benefits and architecting a culture, not just for your traditional nine to five in the office full-time employee. You should be thinking of it in a much broader sense as including your traditional nine to five in the office employee, but also your virtual workers who may live in a completely different part of the country and work remotely. Also your freelancers. Also members of the gig economy that you may have as a part of your business model. And so that demands new management practices. It demands new ways for government to think about policies and benefits to support all of those different types of workers. For example, traditional extending traditional employment protections, extending benefits, extending bargaining rights. And it demands also thinking about the role that machines play as a part of that workforce. Do you believe that organizations, the way they're set up right now, are even ready for all this? You know, that's why I wrote the book, because I spent much of the last decade, well, first of all, I spent a number of years myself when I was investment banker and investor, living around the world and living a lot of these trends myself. And then I spent much of the last decade advising businesses, in some cases, policymakers on these trends and on the future of work. And what I saw was the vast majority of organizations are not ready for these changes. And similarly, the vast majority of policymakers are not necessarily thinking about how we make decisions today that can support our workers and our businesses through these changes for decades to come. So that's actually why I wrote the book. We need to challenge old ways of thinking in organizations and in government. We need to break down the silos in business that no longer reflect today's reality. We need to recognize that work has moved from a nine to five in the office linear career progression where we stay at the same company for life and often Mm -hmm. autonomy and flexibility and fulfillment for stability. You know, in the book, I talk about my grandfather and working at a factory meat paper company. And I talk about, you know, the benefits that he got from that and the stability that he got from that. And if he did well and came in every day, you know, the expectation was that his salary would increase and he would be promoted. We need to move from this concept that that is the only way of work today to Mm -hmm. a much broader conception that people are working all over the country and they're doing it in very, very different ways. 
Yeah, it's so funny that you'd mentioned the word recognize. And I think that's what a lot of employers probably need to do at this point is they need to have an awareness around what's happening. Because I think we've seen it in bite-sized chunks. We've seen it, for example, I'm a marketing leader. So I could either hire internal people, but there's also a vast amount of talent on like Upwork and Elance and 99designs and all these other places where I can like tap into the gig economy or try to hire somebody who can do it all. But that's just not really possible nowadays. And especially with what people want, they want to work from wherever they want to work. I just like this talent mobility revolution that you describe. It's kind of happening underneath us without (laughs) most people really understanding what's happening. Describe what that talent mobility revolution is. Definitely. And when I started thinking about this book, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about it for a couple of years. And when I started thinking about it, I looked at a lot of other things on the market and I I thought, you know, we've had quite a lot of books that talk about globalization and the trends and impacts. We've had quite a lot of books that maybe talk about millennials or talk about automation as a force of disruption, but no one had really said, okay, these things together, what does that actually mean if you are a business leader or you are a worker? What is the playbook to navigate those trends in a really, really practical way? And what should you be thinking about for the next 10, 20, 30 years as one of those things, as a business leader, as a worker, or as a government leader? And so that's what I really endeavored to do with the book. Now, the talent mobility revolution is what is happening in our economy today. It's this, the convergence of those three mega trends, globalization, automation, and demographic change, which means that people are working in a much more mobile way. There is uh, movement between different types of employment. So in a career today, it's most likely that people in their 20s today through the decades of their career will spend time as a traditional full-time employee, may spend time as a freelancer or a member of the gig economy, may take time off to travel or volunteer or take care of kids. It's a much more episodic and mobile thought of a career. People are working across different locations. They may be working in the office. They may be working at their house. They may be working at a cafe or a co-working space. And that has also very big implications for unlocking economic opportunities outside of a major metro area where for so many decades you had to move to a job. Today, you can connect to a job from anywhere. Mm -hmm. People are also working across different geographies. You know, it's not uncommon to grow up in one state, work, go to college in another state, work in another state, maybe spend some time working abroad in a different location, be that for a few months or a few years. And that's something that today's workforce is craving. Now, that's the talent mobility revolution. It's this concept that because of these three megatrends, people are working in very different ways, which is fundamentally much more mobile. Now, this has pros and it has cons. The pros are it gives today's workforce what they want in many ways, much more flexibility, much more autonomy, the opportunity to learn and work across different places the opportunity to live where they may want to and connect or commute to a job, the opportunity for diversity to grow because with flexibility and mobility comes a greater opportunity to care for parents or support children. 
but it also has cons. It has the possibility of work of companies abusing this privilege and not equal benefits, not providing people traditional employment protections, setting themselves up for huge tax exposure or operational challenges. And that's what the book has to address both sides of this. I can imagine another con would be those that don't want to change or have this static workforce, they'll probably be left behind, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I mean, and that's another point that the book makes is, you know, a lot of the premise is based on automation as well. So, you know, a lot of repetitive jobs today, we know are at risk from disruption from automation. And what companies need to understand and need to be able to do is they need to be able to say, okay, here's my workforce. Here are all the skills that my employees have. They're not just tethered to a title with this notion that someone can only do one in their career, that people have all different skills. I often use, and this spans white collar and blue collar jobs. You know, there's the truck driver example and that, you know, there will be a lot of disruption in that industry, most likely with autonomous vehicles and things coming up. But, you know, you may have a truck driver that speaks another language or is a great communicator or has skills with his or her hands. And so, you know, as an employer, you need to understand holistically what people's skills are so that when certain jobs are disrupted, and some of those will be the traditional nine to five repetitive tasks, that as new jobs are created, you can match employees to those jobs, support them through a training program for that, be that an apprenticeship or be that some other type of learning. So I'm an optimist on this view of work changing and this trends of automation. It's just that I think we need to be on the front foot about it as employers, as government leaders, so that we can plan for it and support workers through transitioning careers and transitioning jobs. Yeah, just because of the fluidity of the talent and just what we need as a business. I always encourage employers to do like workforce planning, really, because you see what you need as a business and then what talent you actually have. And then that shows your gaps. And I think you can move people to the right roles faster, match talent with specific job needs, and then go out and find where the gaps are. Do you really encourage people to do that too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the book, we talk about the talent graph, skills graph and talent graph. And this gets a little bit wonky, but for years, human resources functions and the thought process has been around a job title. There's, you know, you are Brandon, you are a senior level analyst in finance or whatever it is. And you have a resume which shows your progression in that particular area. And that's how companies have classified their workforce for decades. And that's how they've recruited for decades. But you as Brandon have a base of skills that probably span what you do day to day in that senior analyst finance role. And so what we purport in the book is that you should be, as an HR leader, reclassifying your workforce based on a skills graph. And there's some really interesting things happening at, at companies today to do that and their partner companies. And then you should also know what are the needs in your organization? What projects do you have upcoming? What skills are needed for those projects? In a perfect scenario, you're able to match your workers with upcoming projects and you're able to 
respond to any kind of disruption or threats that happen to a job by saying, okay, well, Brandon has all these other skills. Here's another job he could move into. Or concurrently, if you, Brandon, say, I'm bored in this finance role, I might want to leave the company. The company can swing into gear and say, okay, we're going to engage you in a different way. We're going to give you another opportunity that matches your skills. And it becomes this really positive flywheel to both support and empower workers and build business resiliency and agility in the face of disruption. And those two things can be really positive and symbiotic in the future economy with foresight, with policies to support workers through a very changing world, with investments in training and apprenticeships, and with leadership between business and government. I think we've all seen like a traditional org chart with, you know, entry level, middle management, senior leaders, and then executives. It makes me wonder, like, based on everything you're saying and everything I read in the book, it seems like this, the traditional org chart is going to be completely blown up. What is it going to look like in the future? You know, people still get a lot of identity from titles. So, you know, I think that we'll look at our workforce in much more of a skills-oriented way and we'll recruit in a much more skills-oriented way. There is still a significant identity component to promotions and titles and such. So I think that that will remain. I think the org chart will be much more fluid. It will be much more matrixed. And this idea of a traditional manager will also really change. So for years, the manager and the function were kind of tied together. There was one person in a linear fashion who sort of ran the function and assessed your performance and yeah. shared knowledge with you and assessed your promotion. We think much more today of the manager as the idea of the orchestrator. So, you know, you have someone who may be the project leader. So you may spend a year doing a particular project and being a part of that team. And you may have a project leader for that. But you may also have a people manager who then takes the reviews from your performance in that project and sort of collates them and is more like a mentor. So I think it's a little bit like the traditional model of a management consulting firm. And I think that that's what we'll see increasingly because as projects are more cross-functional, as they're more agile, more dynamic, it's irrational that you would work for the same person in your career and they would be sort of responsible for your performance assessment and your promotion. The employee, you talk about the manager, but the, the employee, I think in the past we've looked at this, their, like their career arc is very linear. And I'm actually staring at a graphic from your book that shows like the new career path. Yeah. So I'm going <laughs> to describe it. Maybe I'll screenshot it and put it in like in a blog post <laughs> that people can see. But the way you have it laid out is it like you go to school, you have job number one, then you have job number two, and you might do freelance work at the same time. Then you might leave those all together, go to freelance work number two, then maybe shift back to a job number three, maybe go back to school, go to job number four, and then maybe go off on your own again. Is that like what we're probably going to see that looks like more the traditional of the future for most employees? I think so. I mean, it's not everyone, right? I mean, it was, we have, and you know, this is one of my big beliefs politically for my campaign, which is separate, but we have sort of, I think we need to have two career paths for folks. We need to have trades and apprenticeships for those, you know, more handyman and more vocational training and more people in the building trades, you know, that will probably remain more traditional, but 
the college track folks, I think, will increasingly work like this. That's driven by, you know, all of the things we've talked about, opportunity, demand for autonomy. We have a much more kind of entrepreneurial and fulfillment-oriented generation coming out of colleges today. We also have a generations in the workforce that lived through recessions and kind of recognize more so than our parents did that businesses are not stable, that they do get acquired, they do get disrupted, the economy shifts. And I think a lot of people think more today about building their own resiliency, building their own toolkit in the face of those things, rather than a patriarchal relationship with an employer where you sort of think that that employer will take care of you forever. Now, what that means is it puts a lot of pressure on government doing the right thing to support workers in the face of these changes with benefits and with kind of updating the contract of work so that people still have their bargaining rights and these kinds of things. And that's why it's so important that we recognize that we really do sort of have a lot of different dynamics happening. On the one hand, we need many more people in the trades and many more apprenticeships there. Yeah. Everyone doesn't necessarily need to go to college, particularly with the cost that we have today. And then on the other hand, you have a workforce that is increasingly moving to wanting flexibility, wanting to leverage their skills across different tours of duty and different employers, wanting the balance of work and life that comes with those episodes in and out of the workforce. And we need to be able to support both of those things as a society. Yeah. One thing that became like loud and clear through your book, and especially reading it through the lens of as an employee as well. I mean, I looked at this as an employer, but also as an employee. And really acquiring new skills and developing nonstop, that's going to be the needs, I think, for employees. Because as you talked about, like the traditional resume is going to be dead. I mean, it'll look more like LinkedIn, right? With having a bunch of skills and people will try to find the right skills to, you know, acquire that kind of talent in the organization or even for a, a specific project. So really, don't you think some of the ownership is going to be on some of these employees to develop and acquire new skills? In many ways, but it's also on the education system. And it's also True, on yeah. the investments that employers and government can make to support training or retraining in the case of some elements of disruption. I am a believer that workers and humans have unending potential and that anyone can learn anything. I am a total on that point. I know that there are people that sort of have doomsday outcomes. <laughs> yeah, we don't like them. <laughs> disruption, automation, or changes. That's not where I fall is we need to be eyes wide open. We need to architect and modernize our education system to ensure that we're both supporting apprenticeship and trades tracks and also supporting our future workforce with more skills development, more recognition of how work is changing, have opportunities for continuous learning, whether that's through community colleges or that's through partnerships between community colleges and businesses. We need to have government funding allocated to training programs, particularly in areas where jobs are more likely to be disrupted and partnerships with business to, to think in an innovative way around that. All of this is created with the assumption that, which I believe, that everyone can learn anything. 
and that the face mm-hmm. of a changing economy, dynamic learning will become a critical, critical part of what we support. I so agree with that. So most organizations are set up with the idea that people will be in the office. So as this talent mobility revolution really takes hold and it's already there, but in the future, as we have employees and contractors and people all over the world, what does an office look like? That's a great question. And I think the real estate impact is one of the most fascinating. Yeah. This talent mobility revolution, as is the notion of being able to work everywhere, which was actually our tagline at Topia, is our tagline at Topia. So offices were, it sort of came up in this initially with this idea that, you know, you would go in, you would connect to the computer, you would go to a meeting, you would have to arrive before your boss and stay until your boss left. I mean, I remember when I worked in banking, we would like literally be sitting there doing nothing, just waiting for the boss. How many more newspapers can I read on this desktop computer before this guy leaves? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Out of here at like 10 p.m. But this like notion of connecting to the machine, being present and showing your FaceTime and like physically going into a meeting to conference room to talk to someone. These were all elements of the traditional office, as were those wretched cubicles, you know, where you would, they're like the most depressing thing in the world, where you would sit in your cubicle all day. It's like that show, The Office. Yeah, I love the show. <laughs> it gives me like PTSD. But that's all changing from the talent mobility revolution. So people work in a much more fluid way. I think, in fact, about, there was an article actually this weekend in the New York Times about this topic. And it said that 40% of the American workforce works from home at mm-hmm. some amount of time. So, I mean, that's a huge number. So people are working fully from home. They're working at home and in the office. And then there's a segment of companies that don't even have offices anymore where people are solely working from home or coffee shops or co-working spaces or whatever it is. So what we see with offices happening is they shrink and they become much more of a place for collaboration and creation rather than you just go there every day to get work done. It's almost like a rubber band. People will come into the office to communicate, to ideate, to build relationships, to brainstorm, to set objectives, you know, those like sporadic moments of creativity that happen on the beanbag chair at the coffee place. And then they will disperse and they will work from home and connect virtually through video conference stuff, just like we're doing right now, through email, through phone calls, et cetera, and often have sort of a in and out way of working. Now, this is incredible for many, many reasons. One, it's incredible because the carbon footprint is reduced from commuting. Two, it's cheaper for businesses with smaller real estate footprints. Three, it gives people a much more balanced work and home life in that they can um, sort of take an hour and pick the kids up from school or, you know, whatever it is in the workday. Four, it allows people to work and live from farther in farther distances from the city. 
And in my congressional district, we see this phenomenon growing significantly. You know, people will move to the the countryside or the rural part of California, really enjoy it, be able to work from home most days, and then go into the city a few hours away if they need to for a meeting or that collaboration. All of these things are super, super, super positive. It also, by the way, has a big economic impact because when you have more people connecting to jobs and having fulfilling jobs in small towns and rural areas, it also has a positive downstream impact with the service economy because people that are living in areas like where I live, you know, will go to the coffee shop or will use the dry cleaner or will, you know, use the local gym. And so it becomes this really positive flywheel of distributing economic opportunity more broadly from just major metros. And for years, our economic opportunity and our jobs have been so concentrated in major metros. And this notion has been that workers have to move to jobs. Now we have jobs that can go to workers anywhere. One of the most fascinating things that I think you talked about, plus in your book, was just the role of a manager and leader. I think managing performance and measuring it is going to change if it hasn't already. And there's a quote I loved in your book that I, I want to state. So the quote says, a coach coaches in real time during a game, reacting to their team's performance and providing in the moment guidance to help the players improve and the team win. The company writes, the coach doesn't wait until the end of the season to start coaching. The same principle applies to performance reviews, end quote. And I think that's like well stated just because, you know, in the traditional workforce, we were doing the annual performance reviews and, you know, waiting to the end of the year to measure performance. But now as you describe that, you know, people might be doing one project and then moving to a different project. And it might be just so much faster and iterative that if you wait for a year to measure performance and talk with somebody about it, to me, that's a terrible manager. So describe to me how people need to be managing and leading and really coaching as that quote states. Yeah, it's funny. I often think about my experience as an investment banker where, you know, everyone hates the annual performance review and you would <laughs> line up and go into this room at the end of the year and some person that you had never even worked with, you know, from HR would read you this annual performance review. And it was always like, where are the people that I actually worked on these deals with? Where are the people that, you know, some of this was so long ago. I mean, it just felt <laughs> yeah. so awful is the best word I could come up with. But there were so many things wrong with it. And like when you were in the middle of your project, you know, sometimes you'd get some dynamic feedback, but You'd be like, how am I doing? And then be like, you have to wait eight months to hear like how you're performed, you know? So it was just <laughs> and so awful and everyone hated it. But so today, especially in a much more dynamic project world, you and the idea is that you set monthly or quarterly objectives for each project team. And that's the job of the project leader. And you dynamically track success toward those objectives, and then have a continuous stream of feedback conversations and check-ins about how the employee is performing versus those objectives. So it also provides the employee the opportunity if, you know, the first month, 
they're not performing well or are off track, they can know that and take action themselves quickly to change course. And that's really, really powerful. I believe in giving people that information so that they always know how they're doing and then they can take the outcomes or the actions from that into their own hands. So that's the premise. Then, you know, you do have an annual sort of talent review at the end of the year because that's critical and do look at all of the different trajectories and performance versus goal throughout the year and kind of come up with a performance indicator for that person. But it's much more informed by real-time feedback. It gives the employee the opportunity to receive feedback and change throughout the year dynamically. It gives the manager or the project leader the opportunity to engage with the employee much more dynamically. And it's just better for everyone all around. In this new world with people being all over the world, distributed workforces, I imagine like creating policies around that would be pretty challenging. You talked about this movement should have four pillars, in-person time, working hours overlap, system adoption and meeting etiquette. Do you want to like just, you can't dive into all those things because it's so much to unpack and that's why people should go get the book for sure. But just talk about like policies in general with this type of workforce that most people are going to have to adopt. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So this is much easier to adopt in a new company. So you can Mm, start with a different set of norms. And we use a few really interesting examples in the book of companies that have been architected to be talent mobility focused companies from day one. We talk about Skype, we talk about WordPress, a number of others. And then, you know, it's difficult to transform, but it is possible and you need to adopt these norms in order to transform. You know, there are things like ensuring work overlap that might mean some odd hours for some people, but you sort of trade that for the flexibility component. There are norms around video conferencing first. So, you know, even if you would prefer to pick up the phone, making sure that you are already always on a video so people can see you. There are norms about no people being together in a conference room. So, you know, things get kind of messy if you have three people together and three people individually working from their home because they can feel very isolated. So there are norms that, you know, even if you are with other members of the team, everyone should dial in individually so that it's kind of a level playing field. Really interesting. Other examples that we talk about in the book of how companies have set up some really, really effective policies around managing a distributed workforce. And I'd encourage anyone interested in this topic to pick up the book and read those and read some of the best practices from some companies that have done this really successfully because it's really possible. It's really eye-opening, these examples, and it's really empowering for both workers and company success. You'd mentioned that it's a lot easier for newer companies, startups to adapt to this. But what about, you know, organizations that, you know, been around for a long time that have their norms and their culture already set, but now they need to adapt to this new world? What are the action items for those organizations? So it's a big change management exercise. There's a part of the book where we talk about The book is set up as a playbook with nine different topic areas and sort of 
where we've come from, where we go to, and then how to adopt it. And then at the end, we bring everything together. And the final chapter talks about setting up companies like this from the beginning, transforming if you are a traditional company and the change management activities behind that, and then finishes with a policy section to support all of this. But in the change management section, that's really where we tell a traditional company exactly how to adopt this. It starts with intent, like any change management does. So really taking a view that you are going to become an agile organization that starts from the top. And then it really starts with adopting those norms, communicating them, staying true to them. You can't have some rogue manager that insists everyone's going to come into the office nine to five still and really adopt this as an organization. So you've got to get the communication done, the norms adopted, and then really practice what you preach as leaders and show your organization that you are really true about this. Well, Bren, there's so much more I could ask you and I could probably hang on and talk with you for a couple more hours about your book. But at this point, I think I'm going to encourage people to just go get the book, dive in deep. There's so much good stuff in here. When is it out? Where can people find it? And where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Because I know you're doing a lot of other stuff besides just launching a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the book is out on October 1st. It is available on Amazon. We also have a website, which is flatfluidfast.com and a hashtag flatfluidfast. We're on Twitter, where we'll be sharing updates and where we're talking about the book. So encourage everyone to take a look at those, please. I am also running for Congress right now in California's 4th District, which is in Northern California, includes the Lake Tahoe area, Yosemite area, and the uh, Roseville, sort of Eastern Sacramento suburban area. And I am taking a lot of these principles about extending economic opportunity outside of major metros into bringing infrastructure investment, jobs, and uh, greater growth to our area. My guest has been Bryn Kennedy. Bryn, thank you for coming on the podcast. Best of luck with the book and best of luck with running for Congress as well. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Have a great day. <laughs>